Hey, what's up, everyone? You're listening to the podcast edition of The Cutting Room, the show where we talk to industry-leading marketing professionals about their philosophy, process, and pregame before they edit an article live. I am your host, Tommy Walker, and thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Erica Schneider, the head of content at Grizzle, and in our conversation, we will discuss the value of intense editorial, developing freelance writers, and bringing meaning back to the phrase storytelling. Let's jump right in. I would love to learn a little bit about your philosophy on content marketing and the effect that it can have on a business. That is a loaded question. So in my mind, content marketing is relevant communication. And to take it a step further, I care so much about editorial quality that it's high quality, relevant communication. And I can get into what I mean by that in a minute, but essentially it's meeting your audience where they are at the stage that's relevant to them in their customer journey in the format that makes sense for where they're reading your content. So content marketing, traditionally, you know, maybe it was you want to just put your stuff out there and have people notice you, but you're going to them. And now it's you want people to notice you and they're coming to you. They're talking about you. You're providing value in a way that actually educates, inspires, empowers, whatever adjective you want to throw in there. But it's relevant, top of all relevant communication. And what I mean by high editorial quality is we're at the stage now where, you know, the top page one of the SERPs, they all look very similar because everyone's playing the keyword game, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a necessary evil until it isn't. But you don't have to, you know, regurgitate what everything everyone else is doing. And people are cottoning on to that. And so if you want to be credible and you want to build authority in the space, you know, you have to be unique and connect with people in a way that keeps you top of mind. And the best way to do that is to put a lot of effort into editorial to make sure that even though you've done all the research, you know, this is where your audience is, this is these are the plays that you need to make, like what you actually put out the end product is good and it's unique and it's creative and it's different and it's worth talking about. All right, so here's the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. What makes good content? I mean, what makes good content? Okay. There's a lot of different layers to that question. First of all, obviously what makes good content is if it, if it speaks directly to your target audience. So I despise one liners that speak to everyone in the world and aren't, you know, unique, but as someone kindly pointed out to me in one of my first LinkedIn posts, you know, well, presidents use them in their speech. What's wrong with that? Clearly it has a place. Okay, cool. Well, we're not the president. We're speaking to a target audience and we know who they are, you know, if we've done our jobs. So good content speaks to your audience. It's specifically trying to accomplish whatever goal you have. So that's like the preamble to anything else I'm about to say, but editorially, it doesn't have filler. It's not redundant. It actually knows what a hook is and how to hook people. It's not over-relying on stats. It's not quoting other articles and giving out backlinks when you don't need to. It structurally makes sense. When you're going through a narrative, I kind of picture like a weaving line. And if at any point you hit a speed bump, you're going to need to go back and reread or you're just going to leave. So as you go through the line, it should be smooth. It should be nice. It should make sense from A to B, you know, regardless of whether you're doing thesis, antithesis, solution, you know, situation, challenge, answer, solution, whatever format you're using, there's no speed bumps. People get through it. They like it. They enjoy it. They engage with it. But also people skim. So again, it it doesn't have to be that you expect everyone to read every single word on the page. But if they're skipping to the H2 that they're really looking for, that every single H2 needs to be like hitting it, you know? 
have a hook, explain it, have an example if that makes sense, a takeaway, practical advice is a big one. I could go on. <laughs> it's funny. I actually, so when I talk about editorial and uh, skimming in particular, it's every mm-hmm. H2 is the opportunity to bring somebody back into the piece. Mm-hmm. The question that I have in that case, and we're not really talking about philosophy now, but maybe we can tie this back to philosophy is when you're bringing somebody back into the piece or constantly trying to bring somebody back into a piece, from a philosophical standpoint, what is it that you're looking at or thinking about as it relates to your reader and that intent and why they're there? Yeah, so philosophically, I mean, H2s should tie benefits to outcomes. That's what we always say at Grizzle. So as they're skimming along, instead of just, what is this? It's a benefit. So do this to achieve X. And whatever that X is needs to be really relevant to what they're there for. So yeah, philosophically, people need to understand, okay, if I skip to this section, this is the outcome that I'm going to get, and I'm going to see exactly how to do it and why it's important. Cool. You've got a whole lot of process stuff that I'm like itching to get into. We're actually <laughs> going to skip. We're going to get into this a little bit sooner than I think we normally do. Okay. Um, the research process, getting to know the customer, getting to know the reader, meeting them where they're at. Yeah. What does that look like for you? Because ideally, either your writer or you as the first reader mm-hmm. are becoming a conduit for that sort of subconscious back of the head conversation that people are having. What does that process look like for you to find out what that is? So we're an agency. So from an agency viewpoint, like we do a lot of this work for the writer, but obviously if a freelancer is working with someone that doesn't have the capacity to do this, then they would have to do everything I'm about to say themselves. But the first and most important thing is to understand whoever you're writing for, what their goal is, for the piece and how they want to be represented in the market. So are they mission driven? Are they trying to grow, you know, organically for brand reach? Are they trying to generate leads, you know, mainly from email signups or landing page conversions? Whatever that goal is, start there. The next step is to have conversations with subject matter experts themselves. So whether that's someone that works at the company of the product or service that you're writing about so they can tell you specifically what they feel they have created the product or service for, or if it's one of their customers so that you can understand what they bought into the product or service for. And that helps you understand everybody's outcome. And obviously the audience's outcome is way more important than what the brand wants to do. It always has to lead with the audience. One of the things that I like to do when we do the research on the search results in particular for reverse engineering that side is I'll take handwritten notes on what some people are saying, what other people aren't, and like find those gaps where nobody's saying this, but then use what I can find through like social media chatter, Reddit posts, things like that to sort of fill in those gaps and better meet that intent. Can you kind of go into, I I know you were starting to talk about this until the audio cut out, but Mm -hmm. can we jump off of that and what that sort of reader research is looking like before you write the piece or get into the piece? Yeah, absolutely. So the reader research is everything, honestly. So as much as I care about editorial, like I care equally about making sure that you are uncovering what you want to talk about as much as I do about talking about it well. So to me, they're equally as important. I feel like this is just from personal experience, I might be wrong, but from what I've seen 
there's an oversaturation of people that are experts in the strategy side of thing, which is things, which is so great. It's so important, but there's not an oversaturation of experts in the editorial side of things. And to me, there, there are two parts that go like this. One can't exist without the other. So anyway, so yeah, so you're uncovering those conversations, those gaps, just like you were talking about. If it's an SEO play, you'll reverse engineer the SERPs, see what keywords you want to go for. But then the goal as well. So, you know, if it's a mission-driven brand trying to change the conversation, the way that you're going to structure your piece is going to be different than if it's a brand that is already kind of known in the space and they just want to generate more sales. So, you know, that's where the strategy side of, of things comes into play. Um, but yeah, specifically, I can give a specific example with one of our clients. Um, it was in a space where feedback isn't necessarily valued, but their tool is a feedback tool to not go into too many details. And I found that nobody was talking about that. And so not only were they somewhat unique in their tool, but even their competitors weren't really talking about the thought leadership behind the thing. There was a lot of how to execute a thing, but there wasn't the thought leadership way. So our strategy for them was to create super original thought leadership pieces that also tapped into the strategy in the second half of the draft, mm -hmm. you know, and that was how that started, for example. Okay, cool. And you kind of mentioned, and this was something that I thought was neat because you've been talking about the sort of, I don't really know the word I'm looking for here and I deal with words for a living, right? That's but the sort of sameness that starts to happen in the search results, mm -hmm. right? If you're like, I think one of the most important parts for an editor, and we actually had this conversation with Ryan McCready a few weeks back, is to bring that unique point of view, right? How do you get rid of the samey sameness and create a signal amongst mm -hmm. all the other noise that's out there that sort of makes everything look identical? Yeah. So it's hard because you still have to satisfy the robots. So you still are trying to go for that snippet it's not easy to, to make a creative snippet. I mean, nor would you want to. So we were, I, was, I posted about storytelling on my LinkedIn today. Yes, this is so yes. overused and we need to like bring the value behind what that word means back into context. Storytelling is a really interesting way to do it. So there's different, obviously different ways to do storytelling. There's the art of storytelling, which is to use storytelling throughout your content. And then there's business storytelling where businesses are, are literally creating stories like mini movies, something that you would imagine as a story. Mm -hmm. And they're using that to implicitly connect with people rather than explicitly connect with them. And so if you're trying, if you're doing an SEO play and you're trying to stand out in the SERPs, a great way is to use storytelling in your introduction. So if you're writing about, for example, the piece that we're going to go through today was about pricing strategies. Instead of saying, you know, pricing strategies depend on your audience and your competition. You know, we're going to talk through what those are and it's important to get it right, which is basically what most of them say, you could start with a story. You could find a, either a B2B or B2C brand, whoever your audience is, and find a success or a failure when it came to pricing and start with that. You know, So X brand, when they launched, they set their pricing to this and they either succeeded or they failed. And you're kind of anecdotally backed up by data and stats, obviously, you can't just riff on this, explaining what happened and that's an interesting way to stand out and kind of hook people in, to get them to imagine themselves as making that mistake or overcoming that challenge. And that's a really, really authentic way that is super relatable to everyone that gets them imagining themselves in that role. And then they want to keep scrolling. 
Um, so that's just one of the ways. Yeah. I love it. Now, if we zoom out, right, because we can look at that on a piece by piece or campaign by campaign basis and like video by video, like you can look at that individual story as a whole. But if we zoom out a little bit and we're telling the broader story of the brand and the mm -hmm. editorial calendar that we're planning and all of this other stuff, mm -hmm. how are you looking at that? Like, how are you telling the story over a longer period of time? Yeah, that's harder, obviously. So a good way to do that is to inject literal anecdotes or advice or examples from either the founders or the people that work for them themselves throughout your content. So if you're making a point that pricing strategies, you know, are important to figure out before you just choose a price, then you can talk about your own experience with pricing strategies, mm -hmm. for example, at your own business. Yeah, it's finding that way of sort of bringing your anecdotal evidence into it to not only, you know, like I said before, help people see themselves in it, but help them get to know you better without necessarily being like, here's our story, like watch this 10 minute video of us. You're sort of giving little nuggets throughout, which is interesting. I think what's cool about that and something that I try to think about when it comes to this too is thinking about what's somebody going to want to know after mm -hmm. pricing, you know, pricing strategies and product pricing in this case. And then what's mm -hmm. somebody going to want before that? And how can we start to foreshadow what's going to come next and anticipate that because we've done the research and really have those conversations, both with the internal subject matter experts and with the actual yeah. people who are going to be doing this and da 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 um, so let's see here. I want to learn a little bit more about your pregame. Let's talk about the pregame before you jump into an edit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would like to just encourage anybody here who has any questions, please feel free to ask in the chat. This is a live format. Let's take advantage of that and feel free to ask any questions along the way. All right, pregame. Okay. So I'm a huge advocate for detailed briefs and outlines. This was actually completely new to me because there was no outline here and I didn't know who the audience was. And so a lot of my feedback could change based on those factors. So the pregame is familiarizing myself if I haven't done it myself with the brief and the outline. And the brief has you know, a competitive analysis of what else is happening in the SERPs, an angle that we wanna take to stand out, be unique, be different, fill in gaps in value opportunities that we can mention the product, add stories, all that good stuff, any secondary keywords that need to be included, and then the outline itself. So that's usually, I like looking at the structure of the piece in outline format before looking at a finished piece in outline format, because as we'll see in a minute, I totally reworked how this piece was presented. And that's something that I would have caught in the outline phase. And it's easier when you're looking at one page instead of, you know, 15 mm -hmm. to do that. It just takes a lot less time. So I'm a huge advocate of the outline. In terms of actually getting ready, mindset is a huge thing. So I'm a, another, I think I made this up, made up this word, um, but I call it context switching. So it's something that editors and writers need to do if they work with more than one client. So you have to not only represent your client on the page, you have to become them. Sometimes you're even writing in first person. So there's an element of acting involved. And I am by no means an actor <laughs> at all, but it's getting into the mindset of who that person is. And so in order to do that, I will always read 
you know, the blog, a blog or two of theirs before I hop into it to just familiarize myself with their tone of voice. If they have any videos that they put out where they're speaking or someone that represents their brand tone or voice is speaking, I'll watch something like that. I mean, I'm talking like five minutes, but just to get into their voice and tone because you are representing them and going in without doing that is a risk because you might make a subconscious change based on your preferences, but uh, those have very little to do with their preferences usually. And there is room for pushback, of course. But yeah, so I get into the mindset, I, I look at the outline, I know what we're trying to achieve, and then I open up the draft, I have the outline next to me, and I dig in. Would you be able to share one of the outline templates that you're using or the frameworks that you're using afterwards? Because uh, yeah. we have a, we have a, we love those over here. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And, and if I'm understanding that correctly, too, it's almost like a meditative practice. If I'm, Don't let me put words into your mouth, but it's almost like a meditative practice once you're ready to get into the edit, so you can take everything that you've brought on from that client in this case, bring that forward. Right? Yeah. I have to say one of the most common edits that I make after a freelancer submits a draft is the client wouldn't say it like this, or this isn't their tone. Mm -hmm. And so obviously we have client guidelines that we share as well, but I don't know if people remember to read them every single time, mm. but really it's like stretching before you go do a workout, honestly, like you don't want to pull a muscle. And so you have to get yourself warmed up. And if you skip this step, like not only are you going to get the tone of voice wrong or the angle or whatever else is in the brief, you might miss the mark, but you're creating tons of work for either the editor or yourself future self, they kick it back to you for a round of feedback. So it, it's really like 10 to 15 minutes of, yeah, meditational mindset setting at first saves you tons of time. Now, as an editor, how are you, this is a tricky one because a lot of our viewers are content leads, right? Mm -hmm. How are you trying to communicate that sort of, that voice that you're trying to go after that sort of vibe, <laughs> right? It's something that's kind of intangible. How are you taking that and putting it into words? Yeah. So we always have a target audience section in our brief as well, where we explain okay. what they're about. But we also have a reference content section in our brief where not only do we add internal links, but we'll specifically say, you know, the way that they explain this in this link is really interesting. Read that for inspiration, something like that. So we try to gotcha. give them as many assets as we can um, before we ask them to then go and like morph into this person. That makes a lot of sense. It sounds like you're really taking some time to invest in the author themselves too, right? Like, yeah, we take that? tons of time. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me what that, that sort of like writer development process looks like for you mm. um, and how that sort of works, because obviously you don't want to have one and done relationships with like a single freelancer and just yeah. sit, turn around. So, Tell me about that. What's your writer development process like? Yeah. So just to zoom out for a second. So I was talking a lot about how I care about editorial quality and how I want people in like the content strategy roles to care as much about editorial. But I also wanna revolutionize from the inside, right? So the people that are producing this are often freelancers. And if they are not hearing constructive criticism or pushback, or if they're not being invested in to help them improve, they're just getting cycled around, you know, like, oh, this wasn't good, sorry, bye. And then they go, yep. They get hired by someone else and they're not learning, right? And so it's like a top and bottom, like I want to like, like the revolution from both sides, essentially. And so we invest a lot in them. We have a pilot process that we pay for. And in that pilot, 
I will start to give them feedback that they'll likely see from us once they get hired so that they're used to it. And that's a good chance for them to be like, this is great. I'm excited. Like you guys are super constructive and I want to learn, or this is too much for me. And that's a really good chance because we want people that are hungry and that want to improve their writing. And we want people that want to produce valuable work, not just get paid for putting words on a page, you know? I think that's important. And that's like when I, because I was at Shopify for a very long time and I was over on the editorial side on the enterprise division. And I was like, it's an investment, right? It really is an investment. It's a trust-based relationship. And it's one where you have to, like, it's, it's emotional. It is almost emotional because you're judging the quality of somebody's thoughts and interpretation of certain facts and research and data and all of this other stuff. And yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things like there is a huge level of vulnerability. And so here's a better question for you. How are you going about pattern breaking? Because obviously, like any relationship, p- people are bringing their baggage into it. Mm-hmm. How do you go about breaking those patterns to better serve your clients? Yeah. So we front load constructive feedback. And until recently, a lot of that feedback was ad hoc, but we actually just started creating internal courses that we're sending our writers through as well. So kind of preempting them for what we're going to say so that they're prepared for it. And then we'll just keep, you know, telling them throughout. But the idea and what's worked for us is that you front load feedback, you put hours into not only leaving comments like I did today, but sending detailed notes afterwards saying, you know, I left a lot of comments in the draft, but this is our high level feedback. Um, Here's what you did well. Here's where you, I think you can improve, like watch out for this, this, and this. And until I watched, uh, I think I mentioned, I watched a couple of these before I came on. I watched the one where I think it was Margaret from Airtable and she has this amazing like quality scorecard for writers that we might, you know, start using a version of that ourselves. Cause that's amazing because a lot of the feedback is sort of you know, piece by piece and ad hoc, but it's super important for writers to not only see, you know, oh, you did well here, or this piece was kind of, you could do better, but to see like a steady improvement. Ideally, if we're doing our job right, the line will be going like this and they'll see that they're improving. And we want them to obviously work with us as long as they can. But if they want to go out into the world, I want them to feel like we've empowered them to be like epic writers wherever they go. Yeah, it's job security for them. And it's Mm -hmm. like consistency and reliability on your part. So like, I think that's incredible. All right. So we are at the 528 for me. Let's um, tell me a little bit about your pregame. We're going to jump straight into the article here in just a second. Mm -hmm. First thing you do before you jump into the article, you clear your mind, you get into the mindset, you stop context switching and focus in. What comes next? So the first thing I'll do is I will skim read to make sure that if we've got the outline next to me, that the H2s actually follow the order of operations that makes the most sense. And that, of course, depends on your strategy and how you want to present your arguments, if you're going for an SEO play or not. So I'll do a skim. And then I will pop back up to the top and spend a lot of time on the introduction because obviously that's where people make or break, whether they're going to keep reading or leave. And then honestly, I know a lot of people tend to go and do like high level edits first. I sort of dive in. That's my process. It might take me a bit longer, but for example, today I, you know, I skimmed it. I thought this is kind of out of place, but I need to read it in detail to understand how this is out of place and how I can fix it. And in so doing, I realized, okay, there's absolutely no need for this. Like, let's move this up here. And I did all that rejigging after I line edited the introduction and a bit of the first section. 
And then mm -hmm. from there, like once it's structurally in the right place, I go into line editing. And then, yeah, let's do it. And that's it for the podcast edition of The Cutting Room. If you'd like to watch while Erica edits live, click on the link in the show notes and you'll be brought directly to the edit on our YouTube channel. And if you'd like to attend the next live session, sign up for our email list at thecontentstudio.com forward slash the cutting room or by following the link in the show notes. Thank you again, and we'll see you in the next one.